Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Today I want to begin a series of talks on Buddhism in society, which I've given the title A Culture of Awakening. I wrote a book by that title eight years ago, which you can find online. And these talks will loosely follow that book. I'm spiritual, but not religious. We've all heard this statement, often along with an offhand dismissal of organized religion. Or we hear that the Buddha did not start a religion. We Westerners often see polarity between the personal and the social. We love the lone individualist, in particular the spiritual virtuoso who boldly takes the path less traveled. Siddhartha, Hermann Hesse's hero, is such a person. We love it that Buddhism exalts that spiritual adept, the light unto himself, the one who retreats from city or village life to explore in solitude life's questions an ideal well represented in the life of the Buddha himself, who after much travail shattered the constraints to which the common person is subject. We love those guys, but we sometimes have trouble reconciling them with temple life, the chanting, the bows, the hierarchy, the postures, the robes, and the bald heads. Still, we must acknowledge that our practice has a social context. Something or someone inspired us to begin this practice. Something or someone provided the tools, the instruction, the teachings, the examples that allowed us to begin and sustain this practice. The importance of this context only grows when we appreciate just how radically different this lone individual who has broken free is from the rest of us. He has broken through not so much social constraints as his own human nature, bursting the limitations of hundreds of millions of years of evolution that have otherwise produced frightened, greedy, hateful, and confused beings and has instead entered the rationalized and ethicized awareness of the noble ones. He did not just arise spontaneously. He needed a lot of help. A social context provides the necessary conditions in which noble ones arise. The initial inspiration, the role models, the admirable friendship, the preservation and communication of extremely sophisticated and fragile teachings through the generations and millennia. The teachers, the patient, encouragement, and the time. These are the elements at play in a culture of awakening. This is the cultural context that will also best absorb his civilizing influence in turn. 
In fact, the Buddha did start a religion, if what we mean by that is an institutional basis for propagating and protecting his teachings. He was very much concerned to define the precise social conditions necessary to do all of the preceding and codified his results, particularly in the Vinaya, the complement to the Dharma. In doing so, he set the Buddha Sasana in motion. Buddhism as it is lived in its social and historical dimensions, that which has thrived, spread, suffered setbacks, and persists to this day. In fact, the Buddha was as wildly successful in this endeavor as in many of his other undertakings, producing not only the first world religion, but what is now arguably the oldest institution, secular or religious, on the planet, the Sangha that has carried the flame of the Dharma to light for 100 generations of Buddhists. These talks provide a much broader perspective of Buddhism than most Western students of Buddhism are familiar with, one which indeed embeds and reaffirms the narrower perspective of the individual path of development and ultimate liberation, but which also aims to expand for the listener the full scope of what it is that the Buddha set in motion. This is an organic view of Buddhism that is all too commonly overlooked or dismissed in the West, yet is so intrinsic to Buddhism in Asia that it hardly needs mentioning. It took me many years to come to the understanding represented in these talks. As a Westerner, a former academic, not religiously trained as a child, I came to Buddhism initially in its Western manifestations with a rational, secular mindset. The supernatural has never been a draw for me. Alan Watts and Stephen Batchelor were early influences on the path. My early exposure to Western Soto Zen showed me a ritual world that initially made no sense to me at all, but that, in the end, I was curious and open-minded enough to want to get to the experiential bottom of. Established as a Soto Zen priest, very much concerned with the future of Buddhism in the West, my curiosity and modest reserve of open-mindedness extended to the many ethically Asian temples found in Texas, California, and elsewhere, which seemed to me to be intriguingly different from Western centers, yet strangely similar to one another, regardless of country or tradition of origin. Somehow innately drawn almost from the beginning to monastic practice, I also began studying the Winia, the traditional monastic code, no longer observed in Japanese Zen. I considered ordaining in a Winia tradition for many years, but still holding many worldly ways, had many doubts about my own capacity for living a life of renunciation. The deciding factor arose in my mind after much study and contemplation with the realization that the monastic sangha is 
by the Buddha's design, the linchpin of the sasana. The conclusion seemed inescapable to me. Oh my gosh, without the presence of real monks and nuns practicing in the traditional way, Buddhism was not going to make it in the West. It never has anywhere else. It will not here. I resolved to myself, it's a clean job, but somebody's got to do it. I ordained as a bhikkhu, as a full monk in Burma, lived there for over a year, and have been living in the USA at Burmese monasteries primarily, now for a number of years. Living embedded in a devoutly Buddhist Asian culture, one that is decidedly pre-modern in outlook, that inhabits a world full of magical forces and tree spirits, has given me an appreciation for Buddhism's rare ability to blend with elements of folk culture and yet at the same time retain its full integrity, particularly in the minds and lives of its most adept and respected representatives. This is the genius of the Buddha Sasana. Among the understandings we hope to gain by looking at Buddhism in its social or cultural contexts are, what is the Sangha for? Why is there so often such a strong cultural overlay at Buddhist temples? Where is the real Buddhism? How can there be militant Buddhism if the Dharma is so radically nonviolent? How does the message of the Buddha manage to survive? What makes the sasana healthy or unhealthy? And how are we doing in Western Buddhism? How does engaged Buddhism fit in with spiritual progress? Let me conclude this introduction by defining the basic structural elements of the culture of awakening. First, of course, is Dharma. Buddhist doctrine, roughly the conceptual framework that supports Buddhist practice, from cosmology through psychology to behavioral guidelines. It is generally scripturally grounded. Dharma was given to us by the Buddha, but has, of course, differentiated historically into various schools like Theravada and Mahayana. The Vinaya and the Sangha. The Sangha is the monastic community of renunciates dedicated full-time to spiritual practice. The Vinaya is the monastic code that they follow, also given to us by the Buddha. It defines what the obligations of the Sangha members are to personal practice, to the monastic community, and to the wider community. Normally, we think in terms of Dharma, but the Buddha repeatedly calls his body of teachings the Dharma Vinaya. The Sasana. This is the playing out of Dharma in time and space, from personal practice to communal activity, and also historical processes such as the growth or decline of Buddhist practice. The sasana is conditioned by dharma and vinaya, 
but also succeeds or fails in sustaining the spiritual well-being of the Buddhist community, as well as the integrity of the Dharma and Vinaya for future generations. It is the culture of awakening. Folk Buddhism. The Dharma is the core or authentic teachings. However, the understanding of the typical Buddhist inevitably differs from a more informed or adept understanding of Dharma, generally in ways that become widespread in a particular culture. This is folk Buddhism. It virtually always exists side by side with the Dharma. Refuge in the Triple Gem giving authority to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and the responsibility of the Sangha are what preserve the authentic Dharma or folk Buddhists predominate. And finally, Buddhist identity. This is self-identification as being a Buddhist and recognition of a community of self-identified Buddhists as a marker of ethnic identity. Notice that Buddhist identity can arise among people who have no knowledge of the content of Dharma. To this degree, this only marginally deserves to be labeled Buddhism. I hope listeners will find these talks in the coming weeks helpful.